Amen. When I was six years old, my aunt gave birth to my cousin Amy on Labor Day. <laughs> now, in one conversation, I heard people talking about the fact that it was Labor Day. And in a separate conversation, just a few minutes later, I heard people talking about my aunt going into labor. And so at six years old, I made the only logical conclusion one could make, we're right, which was that Labor Day was a special day for people to give birth. <laughs> or maybe that Labor Day was a special holiday to mark the birth of my cousin Amy, which seemed pretty cool at six years old. That was my first understanding of Labor Day, and that understanding remained pretty intact until the following year when I heard people talking about Labor Day again, and I didn't know anyone going into labor, and as far as I knew, there were no new cousins being born. As a kid and as a teenager, Labor Day meant something else. Any guesses? What's that? No school. Well, it was sort of it's in that in that general idea. Exactly. It was like the last hurrah, right? It was an unwelcome reminder, actually, of the beginning of the school year. Now, some years school started right before Labor Day, uh, and some years it was the last day of freedom before school started. But either day, either way, Labor Day was like the last hurrah. Anybody else think about Labor Day that way? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the cultural understanding of Labor Day, right? But now I know, and probably you do as well, that Labor Day, always the first Monday in September, springs from the labor movement. A day set aside to acknowledge the social and economic achievements of American workers, to celebrate the contributions that workers make to the strength and well-being of our country, and to recommit ourselves to defending workers' <coughs> rights to ensuring that everybody has wages and benefits and work hours that allow them to enjoy the fullness of life. Now, this is no guarantee, is it? And it certainly hasn't been throughout history. So today, on this Sunday of Labor Day weekend, let's just take a moment to think about where we would be without the labor movement. These are the, some of the things brought to us by the labor movement. The eight-hour workday, which may not seem like your reality, but it is the ideal that a 24-hour period should have eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of rest. That was the original plan for the eight-hour workday. Weekends. There was a time when a weekend wasn't really a thing, but weekends were fought for long and hard by labor rights activists. Minimum wage. Now, we can say a lot about minimum wage, and in fact, minimum wage today especially does not equal adequate wage. There's not a single state in this country where you can work a full-time job at minimum wage and pay for housing. That's just a fact. So minimum wage is not adequate wage, but at least there is a minimum wage. Paid vacation, sick days, safety standards, child labor laws, health benefits, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, retirement benefits. There are so many things that we probably often take for granted that are gifts to us from the labor movement. We can look at that list and think, well, we have a long way to go. And that is really true. In some of these areas, we have made tremendous progress. In other ways, we've, we have regressed. But there's no discounting that whenever there has been progress, it's the hard work, persistence, unwavering commitment of workers' rights activists labor unions, workers organizing, showing up, striking, taking risks, making demands, pushing back against profit-driven executives with all the power. And as with any fight for justice, we can be sure that progress never just comes strolling in on the wings of time, does it? How does progress happen in our culture, in our society? Struggle. What'd you say? Blood, sweat, and tears. Struggle, right? Hardship. And so on Labor Day especially, it's really important to remember that progress always comes because brave, justice-minded people hold fast to a vision that things could be better. And they persist in the face of tremendous risks and threats and personal attacks. This is just true of any 
movement of justice. And we might think, well, yeah, people, weekends are just a thing, right? But weekends were not always a thing, and neither were any of those other things. In the words of Frederick Douglass, speaking about a different uh, movement for justice, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Really important reminders. And so today we give thanks for workers. We give thanks for uh, labor unions and workers' rights. We give thanks for the opportunity that each of us has to use the gifts that God has given us to make a difference in the world, to, to use those gifts for the common good. And we also give thanks for the gift of rest. Today I want to um, read a scripture passage that goes all the way back to the beginning. Like way back to the beginning. Like Genesis chapter 1, which begins how? In the beginning, okay? So I'm going to share some words from Genesis chapter 1 and just a little bit of Genesis chapter 2. And I'm reading from Eugene Peterson's contemporary interpretation of the Bible called The Message. So it will sound very uh, contemporary. It goes like this. First this, God created heavens and earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light, and what happened? And there was light. God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day, and God named the dark night. It was evening, it was morning, day one. God spoke sky in the middle of the waters, separate water from water. God made sky. God separated the water under the sky from the water above the sky. And there it was. God named sky the heavens. It was evening, it was morning, day two. God spoke separate. Water beneath heaven, gather into one place. Land, up here. And there it was. God named the land earth. God named the pooled water ocean. God saw that it was good. God spoke earth, green up. Grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree. And there it was. Earth produced seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day three. And the creation story from Genesis goes on like that through days four, five, and six, creating all of the fish and sea life, the whales, the flying birds, uh, reptiles, cattle, animals of every kind, even the bugs. And God saw all of it and declared that all of it was good. And then God created the human beings. God looked over everything God had made. It was so good, so very good. It was evening, it was morning, day six. So what happened on the seventh day? Say it louder. Rest. Rest. God rested, right? On the seventh day, heaven and earth were finished, down to the last detail. By the seventh day, God had finished God's work. On the seventh day, God rested from all God's work. God blessed the seventh day. God made it a holy day, because on that day, God rested from God's work, all the creating that God had done. On the seventh day, God rested. And God commanded us to do the same, right? God commanded us to do the same. If you think about the Ten Commandments that show up in a couple of places not long after that creation story, but in particular in Exodus chapter 20, there are Ten Commandments. The first three of those commandments are about our relationship with God. Can anybody remember any of those first three about our relationship with God? Right, don't worship any other gods. What else? No graven images, don't make any idols. Anyone else get the third one? That's, that's coming a little bit later. That's it, right. 
don't take the Lord's name in vain or don't misuse God's name. Like don't God use God's name for any inappropriate purpose, right? And then there's, there's, uh, there's the fourth commandment. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten have to do with our relationship with other people. And just a few examples of those. Don't do what? There's a lot of prohibitions. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's anything. It goes into great detail, but nothing. That's actually not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's sort of implied in all of them. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. You got them, right? There's a whole bunch of those. There's six prohibitions. But right in the middle, as kind of like a bridge between the three, the three commandments that have to do with our relationship with God and the six that have to do with our relationship with others is the Sabbath. And it happens to be the longest, the wordiest of all of them. So let me read just that section again from Eugene Peterson's interpretation. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days and do everything you need to do. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to God, your God. Don't do any work. And just in case you didn't catch what the writer meant, don't do any work, not you, not your son, not your daughter, not your servant, not your maid, not your animals, not even the foreign guest visiting in your town. As if you could control that, right? <laughs> For in six days God made heaven, earth, and sea, and everything in them. God rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as a holy day. Isn't it interesting how we often rank order the commandments? Like if you were to take all of those Ten Commandments and list them from like least offensive, no big deal, to most offensive, where would you put honor the Sabbath? I mean, honestly, where would you put that one? At the end, like most offensive? Or least offensive, right? I didn't say, I, didn't, I don't even know what I said. But if you were to rank order them, you would, put them, you would put that as like least offensive, right? I mean, wouldn't most of us? But is there any indication in this passage that God rank orders the commandments? Is there any indication that God says like, you know, killing, stealing, breaking the marriage covenant, those are all really, really bad. But Sabbath, you know, it's a good suggestion. <laughs> Take it to, you know, if it works out, that's really great. Try to do that one. It's actually the one with the most words about it. And yet we so easily rank order that one as least important. Dan Allender has written this book simply titled Sabbath, a whole book about Sabbath. And in this book, he notes Few people begin the week boasting in how many lies they plan to tell in the next five days or end the week full of pride about how much loot they have stolen. We live in a dark day, but it is still rare for someone to publicly tout his or her violation of the Ten Commandments, with one exception, our debasement with busyness. We love to tell others how much we work, how much we still have to get done, and how overwhelmed we are with the exhaustion of our labor. We admire busyness, speed, and productivity, yet we envy those whose leisure time is abundant. We are mad, crazy mad, and we know it. Sabbath rest is not an option. It is a commandment. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah. God can't hit a moving target, which means what? Slow down. And yet we pride ourselves on being moving targets, don't we? It's like a badge of honor to be what? Busy all the time. After the 9 o'clock service, um, Sylvia Thompson came to me and told me this story. I'm not going to get it exactly right. But it was about a speaker of other languages learning English. 
And this person was learning, and she heard this on the radio, I think. Uh, the person was learning English by listening to other people speak. So when someone said, how are you doing? She started saying, busy, busy, busy. Because she heard that response so many times to the question, how are you doing? I mean, we laugh about that, but isn't that like pretty telling? It's a badge of honor in our society to stay busy. Why is it that we pride ourselves so much on that? Any ideas? Our value and work is connected to it. Exactly. We measure our own self-worth by our productivity, right? We think we are not worth much unless we are constantly accomplishing. Yes, Teresa. Sometimes we keep busy to ease the pain. Sometimes we keep busy to ease the pain. That's a really great insight. That is absolutely true, right? If I don't slow down, then I won't ha actually have to face the really difficult things that I'm facing. So I'm just going to stay busy and moving and moving so I never have to be still and actually face the pain I'm confronting. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's absolutely true. Now, earlier this summer, Sarah and I and the girls spent a little time in um, Minnesota and, the, and uh, North Dakota. There was a, a couple of days when Rachel and Catherine went with their aunt and their cousin off to a United Methodist camp in South Dakota, while Sarah and I stayed with one of Sarah's closest friends from high school and college, a former roommate in the Minneapolis area. Now this family happens to be Jewish, and it happened that we were there on a Friday. So guess what happened? We practiced Shabbat. So let me tell you about this experience. As the sun set, we gathered around a table to eat a meal that we had helped to prepare before the sun was setting, a simple meal. We lit candles. They sang songs and recited prayers in Hebrew. You notice how I said that? They sang songs and recited prayers in Hebrew. It was beautiful. We, breast, we blessed the, the challah bread and passed it around. We shared wine. We told stories, we laughed, we relaxed. We delighted in each other's company. When dinner had ended and after we had lingered around the table a little bit with no agenda, uh, we stacked the dishes on the kitchen counter to be washed after the Sabbath was over. This was their custom on Friday evenings and I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. The whole experience was like a glow with candlelight and joy and delight. And it actually made me feel a little bit jealous to have a practice like that, because it's so far removed from how I experience the rhythm of a week. Anybody else relate to what I'm saying? Does anybody have a practice of some kind like that that you find meaningful? Yeah, nobody did at 9 o'clock either. Do you think that our friends who are Jewish practiced the Sabbath or Shabbat because everyone got to the end of their task list and there was nothing left to do except relax? Do you think? No. They practiced Shabbat because that is their practice. They practice Shabbat because that is their spiritual discipline, whether the task list is short or long whether it's mostly complete or full of really stressful, unfinished business, they stop, they set everything down to focus for a time on being and not doing. For a 24-hour period, they focus on being and not doing. Not measuring their self-worth on productivity, but just delighting in one another and in God. Now, I wish I could say that most Christians I know have a similar practice. You know, early Christians, or early followers of Jesus, both before Jesus' death and after, practiced Shabbat from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It was only when Christianity spread and the Emperor Constantine made it the official state religion of the Roman Empire that the Sabbath was switched to Sunday. Anybody know why? I remember asking this question as a kid, and I remember somebody, and I feel like it was my pastor telling me it was because Jesus' resurrection was on a Sunday. So if we're going to focus on Jesus' resurrection, the holy day is Sunday. 
This week I consulted some really authoritative sources like Wikipedia <laughs> and other sources that I googled and most of them agreed that it actually was much more mundane than that that it was a compromise because Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion in a culture where many people worshiped the sun and Sunday was their day of worshiping the sun and so to compromise they made Sunday the Christian Sabbath. Don's nodding his head. Don, Don knows better than Wikipedia. I'm sure of that. Is that kind of gross? Now some of you probably remember days when Sunday actually felt like a Sabbath, right? Yeah? What do you remember about that? Things weren't open. Going to grandma's for lunch. Big dinner in the afternoon. Playing games. Relaxing in the afternoon. Cards. No cards. No cards on Sunday. Actually, my grandparents had that rule too. No cards on Sunday. I remember that now. Family being together. That's much more like Shabbat, right? Is that your experience of Sundays today? I mean, let's just be honest with one another. What do you do on Sunday afternoons? Watch baseball, okay. Now, our Jewish friends would not turn on the TV, right? Because they, they would generally unplug all the electric things. But that's at least Hannaford, mow the lawn, right? Catch up on email, get a jump start on the week. Isn't that what we often do on Sundays? I'm, so this is confession. So if you hadn't known this before, pastors generally preach the messages they need to hear. So I am with you in this struggle. I'm not, this is not me like condemning you bad people. This is like something that we all struggle with. Yeah. Does that mean no football? I'm not making rules here. I am not making rules. But one thing I do know for sure is that we cannot blame retail, sports teams, uh, restaurant. We can't blame other people for what our current Sunday is like. It's just not true. Our Jewish friends do it anyway. Do you think anything ever closed from Friday night to Saturday night? They do it anyway. Why, are the, why is retail and everything open? Because we asked for it to be open. We demanded that, right? And we've actually created a, a situation where many people don't have a choice. They have to work on the Sabbath because of the demand that we've placed. The important thing is that we could do this if we wanted to. So what if we came to see the Sabbath as an essential spiritual practice in whatever way is meaningful for you? What if we came to see the Sabbath as a practice that nurtures our relationship with God and nurtures our relationship with other people. What if we resolve to practice it differently? Labor Day weekend is as good a time as any to think about the importance of the balance between work and rest. Brene Brown says it takes courage to say yes to rest and play in a culture where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Right? Doesn't that make you like, doesn't that like hurt just a little tiny bit, where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Now hear me, what I don't want to do or suggest is that we should legislate this rigidly because what would happen if we did is that we would put practice Sabbath on our task list, <laughs> then we would feel guilty because we didn't accomplish the task on our list, right? And Do you understand the irony of that? It's not about that. The purpose of Sabbath is to practice whatever it is that brings us joy and delight. The purpose of Sabbath is not to accomplish one more thing. But it is good to remember that the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. Because God knows that we need to rest. We need to recharge. We need the discipline. We need joy. We need to find our sacred center in the crowded life we lead. Several years ago, a bunch of us read this book together in a small group book study. It's called An Altar in the World, written by Barbara Brown Taylor. Anybody remember reading this? Great little book. In this book, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal priest and world religions professor, takes ordinary everything, everyday things that we all do, like walking, going to work, experiencing pain, just normal everyday things, and reflects on how we can make those into spiritual practices. 
Now there is a book, there is a whole chapter in this book on, on Sabbath as a practice. But I wanted to share with you a quote that's actually from another chapter in the book called Paying Attention. Um, and in this chapter she's reflecting on how paying attention can be a spiritual practice. She calls that the practice of reverence. Reverence is seeing, is, is recognizing something greater than the self. Something that's beyond our own human creation or control and that transcends human understanding. And I want to share this with you because I think that, again, we don't have to legislate Sabbath keeping rigidly. Maybe it means being intentional about taking chunks of time as Sabbath in the flow of our week, right? It doesn't have to be like rigidly sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, but what if we intentionally set everything down to practice Sabbath moments? Here's how she thinks about that. The easiest practice of reverence I know is simply to sit down somewhere outside, preferably near a body of water, and pay attention for at least 20 minutes. It is not necessary to take on the whole world at first. Just take the three square feet of earth on which you are sitting, paying close attention to everything that lives within that small estate. Is this something you think you could do? You might even decide not to kill anything for 20 minutes, including the mosquito that lands on your arm. Just blow her away and ask her to please go find someone else to eat. <laughs> With any luck, you will soon begin to see the souls in pebbles, ants, small mounds of moss, and the acorn on its way to becoming an oak tree. You may feel some tenderness for the struggling mayfly the ants are carrying away. If you can see the water, you may take time to wonder where it comes from and where it is going. You may even feel the beating of your own heart, that miracle of ingenuity that does its work with no thought or instruction from you. You did not make your heart any more than you made a tree. You are a guest here. You have been given a free pass to this modest domain and everything in it. A Sabbath moment, like taking 20 minutes to just go sit somewhere and just observe what's happening. Pay attention. Listen for the voice of God in that experience. Is that something you feel like you could do? Sure, right? It doesn't have to be anywhere special even. So in your seat, when you arrived, you had a little slip of paper. I want to invite you to see if you can find that now. If you can't find it, you may be sitting on it or it may be under your left foot. See if you can find a slip of paper. And here's what I want to invite you to do. Just take a few moments to reflect on Sabbath keeping. And reflect on this question, what will you do to practice Sabbath this week? It does not have to be a 24-hour period from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Maybe it's 20 minutes when you go and sit by the ocean or in your backyard by the tree. But what could you do this week, whether for a 24 hour period or just for a few minutes, to practice Sabbath intentionally? Because really this is about intention. This is about paying attention. Take an afternoon nap. Get takeout that you don't have to cook and invite a friend over for a relaxing meal with no agenda. <coughs> Go for a long walk with no destination in mind. Make some music. Create art. Spend some time in meditation. Sit by the ocean. What is Sabbath going to look like for you this week? And I invite you just to write down a word or a phrase or a few sentences. This is not to be shared. This is, this is between you and God. If you, if you choose to share it with somebody else, that's totally your prerogative. When we finish with this, I'm not going to have you bring them up and clip them on the prayer station like we sometimes do. Because then you've like offered it up and you have no responsibility for it anymore. This is one I want you to put in your pocket and take it home and put it on your bedside table or your dresser or your mirror or your car dashboard or somewhere where you're going to see it on a regular basis so that you hold yourself accountable to it. So just take a few moments to write something on that slip of paper that represents your commitment.
you now to follow through on what you wrote there. It may not be easy, but whether it's easy or hard, I hope you'll experience it as a gift. Let's take just a few moments to be still in God's presence as we share in this brief reflection written by Steve Garnis Holmes. Just find a comfortable spot in your seat and let's be in the spirit of prayer. Step out of what you have done, the who you think you are that comes from something, into the who that is I am. Be still. Breathe in. Breathe out. Set everything down. The great burden of being yourself what everyone thinks, even you. The work of remembering what you must and mustn't. Let them all go. Be still. Breathe in. Breathe out. Come to the Sabbath place where nothing, even you, is fashioned. Everything just is. Come into the rest that is God, the silence from which your light pours, the spirit brooding over the waters. Here, where you are received, receive yourself. Be still. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. six years old, my aunt gave birth to my cousin Amy on Labor Day. <laughs> now in one conversation, I heard people talking about the fact that it was Labor Day. And in a separate conversation, just a few minutes later, I heard people talking about my aunt going into labor. And so at six years old, I made the only logical conclusion one could make, right? Which was that Labor Day was a special day for people to give birth. Or maybe that Labor Day was a special holiday to mark the birth of my cousin Amy, which seemed pretty cool at six years old. That was my first understanding of Labor Day, and that understanding remained pretty intact until the following year when I heard people talking about Labor Day again, and I didn't know anyone going into labor, and as far as I knew, there were no new cousins being born. As a kid and as a teenager, Labor Day meant something else. Any guesses? What's that? No school. No school. Well, it was sort of it's in that in that general idea. Exactly. It was like the last hurrah, right? It was an unwelcome reminder, actually, of the beginning of the school year. Now, some years school started right before Labor Day, uh, and some years it was the last day of freedom before school started. 
But either, day, either way, Labor Day was like the last hurrah. Anybody else think about Labor Day that way? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's kind of the cultural understanding of Labor Day, right? But now I know, and probably you do as well, that Labor Day, always the first Monday in September, springs from the labor movement. A day set aside to acknowledge the social and economic achievements of American workers to celebrate the contributions that workers make to the strength and well-being of our country, and to recommit ourselves to defending workers' <clears throat> rights, to ensuring that everybody has wages and benefits and work hours that allow them to enjoy the fullness of life. Now, this is no guarantee, is it? And it certainly hasn't been throughout history. So today, on this Sunday of Labor Day weekend, let's just take a moment to think about where we would be without the labor movement. These are the, some of the things brought to us by the labor movement. The eight-hour workday, which may not seem like your reality, but it is the ideal that a 24-hour period should have eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of rest. That was the original plan for the eight-hour workday. Weekends. There was a time when a weekend wasn't really a thing. But weekends were fought for long and hard by labor rights activists. Minimum wage. Now, we can say a lot about minimum wage. And in fact, minimum wage today especially does not equal adequate wage. There's not a single state in this country where you can work a full-time job at minimum wage and pay for housing. That's just a fact. So minimum wage is not adequate wage, but at least there is a minimum wage. Paid vacation, sick days, safety standards, child labor laws, health benefits, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, retirement benefits. There are so many things that we probably often take for granted that are gifts to us from the labor movement. We can look at that list and think, well, we have a long way to go. And that is really true. In some of these areas, we have made tremendous progress. In other ways, we've, we have regressed. But there's no discounting that whenever there has been progress, it's the hard work, persistence, unwavering commitment of workers' rights activists, labor unions, workers organizing, showing up, striking, taking risks, making demands, pushing back against profit-driven executives with all the power. And as with any fight for justice, we can be sure that progress never just comes strolling in on the wings of time, does it? How does progress happen in our culture, in our society? Struggle. What did you say? Blood, sweat, and tears. Struggle, right? Hardship. And so on Labor Day especially, it's really important to remember that progress always comes because brave, justice-minded people hold fast to a vision that things could be better. And they persist in the face of tremendous risks and threats and personal attacks. This is just true of any movement of justice. And we might think, well, yeah, people, weekends are just a thing, right? But weekends were not always a thing, and neither were any of those other things. In the words of Frederick Douglass, speaking about a different uh, movement for justice, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will really important reminders. And so today we give thanks for workers. We give thanks for uh, labor unions and workers' rights. We give thanks for the opportunity that each of us has to use the gifts that God has given us to make a difference in the world, to, to use those gifts for the common good. And we also give thanks for the gift of rest. Today I want to um, read a scripture passage that goes all the way back to the beginning like way back to the beginning, like Genesis chapter one, which begins how? In the beginning, okay? So I'm gonna share some words from Genesis chapter one and just a little bit of Genesis chapter two, and I'm reading from Eugene Peterson's contemporary interpretation of the Bible called The Message. So it will sound very uh, contemporary. It goes like this. First this, God created heavens and earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. 
God spoke light, and what happened? And there was light. God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day, and God named the dark night. It was evening, it was morning, day one. God spoke sky in the middle of the waters, separate water from water. God made sky. God separated the water under the sky from the water above the sky. And there it was. God named sky the heavens. It was evening, it was morning, day two. God spoke separate. Water beneath heaven gather into one place. Land appear. And there it was. God named the land earth. God named the pooled water ocean. God saw that it was good. God spoke earth green up. Grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree. And there it was. Earth produced seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day three. And the creation story from Genesis goes on like that through days four, five, and six creating all of the fish and sea life, the whales, the flying birds, uh, reptiles, cattle, animals of every kind, even the bugs. And God saw all of it and declared that all of it was good. And then God created the human beings. God looked over everything God had made. It was so good, so very good. It was evening. It was morning, day six. So what happened on the seventh day? Say it louder. Rest. Rest. God rested, right? On the seventh day, heaven and earth were finished, down to the last detail. By the seventh day, God had finished God's work. On the seventh day, God rested from all God's work. God blessed the seventh day. God made it a holy day, because on that day, God rested from God's work, all the creating that God had done. On the seventh day, God rested. And God commanded us to do the same, right? God commanded us to do the same. If you think about the Ten Commandments that show up in a couple of places not long after that creation story, but in particular in Exodus chapter 20, there are Ten Commandments. The first three of those commandments are about our relationship with God. Can anybody remember any of those first three about our relationship with God? Right, don't worship any other gods. What else? No graven images, don't make any idols. Anyone else get the third one? That's, that's coming a little bit later. That's it, right. Don't take the Lord's name in vain or don't misuse God's name. Like don't God use God's name for any inappropriate purpose, right? And then there's, there's, uh, there's the fourth commandment. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten have to do with our relationship with other people. And just a few examples of those. Don't do what? There's a lot of prohibitions. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's anything. It goes into great detail, but nothing. That's actually not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's sort of implied in all of them. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. You got them, right? There's a whole bunch of those. There's six prohibitions. But right in the middle, as kind of like a bridge, between the three, the three commandments that have to do with our relationship with God and the six that have to do with our relationship with others is the Sabbath. And it happens to be the longest, the wordiest of all of them. So let me read just that section again from Eugene Peterson's interpretation. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days and do everything you need to do. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to God, your God. Don't do any work. And just in case you didn't catch what the writer meant, 
Don't do any work, not you, not your son, not your daughter, not your servant, not your maid, not your animals, not even the foreign guest visiting in your town. As if you could control that, right? <laughs> For in six days God made heaven, earth, and sea, and everything in them. God rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as a holy day. Isn't it interesting how we often rank order the commandments? Like if you were to take all of those Ten Commandments and list them from like least offensive, no big deal, to most offensive, where would you put honor the Sabbath? I mean, honestly, where would you put that one? At the end, like most offensive? Or least offensive, right? I didn't say, I, didn't, I don't even know what I said. But if you were to rank order them, you would, put them, you would put that as like least offensive, right? I mean, wouldn't most of us? But is there any indication in this passage that God rank orders the commandments? Is there any indication that God says like, you know, killing, stealing, breaking the marriage covenant, those are all really, really bad. But Sabbath, you know, it's a good suggestion. Take it to, you know, if it works out, that's really great. Try to do that one. It's actually the one with the most words about it. And yet we so easily rank order that one as least important. Dan Allender has written this book simply titled Sabbath, a whole book about Sabbath. And in this book, he notes, Few people begin the week boasting in how many lies they plan to tell in the next five days or end the week full of pride about how much loot they have stolen. We live in a dark day, but it is still rare for someone to publicly tout his or her violation of the Ten Commandments. With one exception, our debasement with busyness. We love to tell others how much we work, how much we still have to get done, and how overwhelmed we are with the exhaustion of our labor. We admire busyness, speed, and productivity, yet we envy those whose leisure time is abundant. We are mad, crazy mad, and we know it. Sabbath rest is not an option. It is a commandment. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah. God can't hit a moving target, which means what? Slow down. And yet we pride ourselves on being moving targets, don't we? It's like a badge of honor to be what? Busy all the time. After the 9 o'clock service, um, Sylvia Thompson came to me and told me this story. I'm not going to get it exactly right. But it was about a speaker of other languages learning English. And this person was learning, and she heard this on the radio, I think. Uh, the person was learning English by listening to other people speak. So when someone said, how are you doing? She started saying, busy, busy, busy. Because she had heard that response so many times to the question, how are you doing? I mean, we laugh about that, but isn't that like pretty telling? It's a badge of honor in our society to stay busy. Why is it that we pride ourselves so much on that? Any ideas? Our value and work is connected to it. Exactly. We measure our own self-worth by our productivity, right? We think we are not worth much unless we are constantly accomplishing. Yes, Teresa. Sometimes we keep busy to ease the pain. Sometimes we keep busy to ease the pain. That's a really great insight. That is absolutely true, right? If I don't slow down, then I won't ha actually have to face the really difficult things that I'm facing. So I'm just going to stay busy and moving and moving so I never have to be still and actually face the pain I'm confronting. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's absolutely true. Now, earlier this summer, Sarah and I and the girls spent a little time in um, Minnesota and, the, and uh, North Dakota. There was a, a couple of days when Rachel and Catherine went with their aunt and their cousin off to a United Methodist camp in South Dakota 
Well, Sarah and I stayed with one of Sarah's closest friends from high school and college, a former roommate in the Minneapolis area. Now, this family happens to be Jewish, and it happened that we were there on a Friday. So guess what happened? We practiced Shabbat. So let me tell you about this experience. As the sun set, we gathered around a table to eat a meal that we had helped to prepare before the sun was setting, a simple meal. We lit candles. They sang songs and recited prayers in Hebrew. You notice how I said that? They sang songs <laughs> and recited prayers in Hebrew. It was beautiful. We, breast, we blessed the, the challah bread and passed it around. We shared wine. We told stories. We laughed. We relaxed. We delighted in each other's company. When dinner had ended and after we had lingered around the table a little bit with no agenda, uh, we stacked the dishes on the kitchen counter to be washed after the Sabbath was over. This was their custom on Friday evenings, and I loved it. I loved it. The whole experience was like a glow with candlelight and joy and delight. And it actually made me feel a little bit jealous to have a practice like that, because it's so far removed from how I experience the rhythm of a week. Anybody else relate to what I'm saying? Does anybody have a practice of some kind like that that you find meaningful? Yeah, nobody did at 9 o'clock either. Do you think that our friends who are Jewish practice the Sabbath or Shabbat because everyone got to the end of their task list and there was nothing left to do except relax? Do you think? No. They practice Shabbat because that is their practice. They practice Shabbat because that is their spiritual discipline, whether the task list is short or long, whether it's mostly complete or full of really stressful, unfinished business. They stop, they set everything down to focus for a time on being and not doing. For a 24-hour period, they focus on being and not doing, not measuring their self-worth on productivity but just delighting in one another and in God. Now, I wish I could say that most Christians I know have a similar practice. You know, early Christians, or early followers of Jesus, both before Jesus' death and after, practiced Shabbat. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It was only when Christianity spread and the Emperor Constantine made it the official state religion of the Roman Empire that the Sabbath was switched to Sunday. Anybody know why? I remember asking this question as a kid, and I remember somebody, and I feel like it was my pastor telling me it was because Jesus' resurrection was on a Sunday. So if we're going to focus on Jesus' resurrection, the holy day is Sunday. This week I consulted some really authoritative sources like Wikipedia <laughs> and other sources that I googled and most of them agreed that it actually was much more mundane than that that it was a compromise because Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion in a culture where many people worshiped the Sun and Sunday was their day of worshiping the Sun and so to compromise they made Sunday the Christian Sabbath Don's nodding his head. Don, Don knows better than Wikipedia. I'm sure of that. Isn't that kind of gross? Now, some of you probably remember days when Sunday actually felt like a Sabbath, right? Yeah? What do you remember about that? Things weren't open. Going to grandma's for lunch. Big dinner in the afternoon. Playing games. Relaxing in the afternoon. Cards. No cards. No cards on Sunday. Actually, my grandparents had that rule, too. No cards on Sunday. I remember that now. Family being together. That's much more like Shabbat, right? Is that your experience of Sundays today? I mean, let's just be honest with one another. What do you do on Sunday afternoons? Watch baseball, okay. Now, our Jewish friends would not turn on the TV, right? Because they would generally unplug all the electric things. But that's at least Hannaford. 
mow the lawn, right? Catch up on email, get a jump start on the week. Isn't that what we often do on Sunday? So this is confession. So if you hadn't known this before, pastors generally preach the messages they need to hear. So I am with you in this struggle. I'm not, this is not me like condemning you bad people. This is like something that we all struggle with. Yeah. I'm not making rules here. I am not making rules. But one thing I do know for sure is that we cannot blame retail, sports teams, uh, restaurant. We can't blame other people for what our current Sunday is like. It's just not true. Our Jewish friends do it anyway. Do you think anything ever closed from Friday night to Saturday night? They do it anyway. Why, are the, why is retail and everything open? Because we asked for it to be open. We demanded that, right? And we've actually created a, a situation where many people don't have a choice. They have to work on the Sabbath because of the demand that we've placed. The important thing is that we could do this if we wanted to. So what if we came to see the Sabbath as an essential spiritual practice in whatever way is meaningful for you? What if we came to see the Sabbath as a practice that nurtures our relationship with God and nurtures our relationship with other people? What if we resolve to practice it differently? Labor Day weekend is as good a time as any to think about the importance of the balance between work and rest. Brene Brown says it takes courage to say yes to rest and play in a culture where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Right? Doesn't that make you like, doesn't that like hurt just a little tiny bit? Where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Now hear me, what I don't want to do or suggest is that we should legislate this rigidly. Because what would happen if we did is that we would put practice Sabbath on our task list. <laughs> then we would feel guilty because we didn't accomplish the task on our list, right? And do you understand the irony of that? It's not about that. The purpose of Sabbath is to practice whatever it is that brings us joy and delight. The purpose of Sabbath is not to accomplish one more thing. But it is good to remember that the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. Because God knows that we need to rest. We need to recharge. We need the discipline. We need joy. We need to find our sacred center in the crowded life we lead. Several years ago, a bunch of us read this book together in a small group book study. It's called An Altar in the World, written by Barbara Brown Taylor. Anybody remember reading this? Great little book. In, in this book, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal priest and a religion, world religions professor, takes ordinary everything, everyday things that we all do, like walking, going to work, experiencing pain, just normal everyday things, and reflects on how we can make those into spiritual practices. Now there is a book, there is a whole chapter in this book on, on Sabbath as a practice. But I wanted to share with you a quote that's actually from another chapter in the book called Paying Attention. Um, and in this chapter she's reflecting on how paying attention can be a spiritual practice. She calls that the practice of reverence. Reverence is seeing, is, is recognizing something greater than the self, something that's beyond our own human creation or control and that transcends human understanding. And I want to share this with you because I think that, again, we don't have to legislate Sabbath keeping rigidly. Maybe it means being intentional about taking chunks of time as Sabbath in the flow of our week, right? It doesn't have to be like rigidly sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, but what if we intentionally set everything down to practice Sabbath moments? Here's how she thinks about that. The easiest practice of reverence I know is simply to sit down somewhere outside, preferably near a body of water, and pay attention for at least 20 minutes. It is not necessary to take on the whole world at first. Just take the three square feet of earth on which you are sitting, paying close attention to everything that lives within that small estate. Is this something you think you could do? You might even decide not to kill anything for 20 minutes. 
including the mosquito that lands on your arm. Just blow her away and ask her to please go find someone else to eat. <laughs> With any luck, you will soon begin to see the souls in pebbles, ants, small mounds of moss, and the acorn on its way to becoming an oak tree. You may feel some tenderness for the struggling mayfly the ants are carrying away. If you can see the water, you may take time to wonder where it comes from and where it is going. You may even feel the beating of your own heart, that miracle of ingenuity that does its work with no thought or instruction from you. You did not make your heart any more than you made a tree. You are a guest here. You have been given a free pass to this modest domain and everything in it. A Sabbath moment, like taking 20 minutes to just go sit somewhere and just observe what's happening. Pay attention. Listen for the voice of God in that experience. Is that something you feel like you could do? Sure, right? It doesn't have to be anywhere special even. So in your seat, when you arrived, you had a little slip of paper. I want to invite you to see if you can find that now. If you can't find it, you may be sitting on it or it may be under your left foot. See if you can find a slip of paper. And here's what I want to invite you to do. Just take a few moments to reflect on Sabbath keeping. And reflect on this question, what will you do to practice Sabbath this week? It does not have to be a 24-hour period from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Maybe it's 20 minutes when you go and sit by the ocean or in your backyard by the tree. But what could you do this week, whether for a 24-hour period or just for a few minutes, to practice Sabbath intentionally? Because really, this is about intention. This is about paying attention. Take an afternoon nap. Get takeout that you don't have to cook and invite a friend over for a relaxing meal with no agenda. <coughs> Go for a long walk with no destination in mind. Make some music. Create art. Spend some time in meditation. Sit by the ocean. What is Sabbath going to look like for you this week? And I invite you just to write down a word or a phrase or a few sentences. This is not to be shared. This is, this is between you and God. If you, if you choose to share it with somebody else, that's totally your prerogative. When we finish with this, I'm not going to have you bring them up and clip them on the prayer station like we sometimes do. Because then you've like offered it up and you have no responsibility for it anymore. This one I want you to put in your pocket and take it home and put it on your bedside table or your dresser or your mirror or your car dashboard or somewhere where you're going to see it on a regular basis so that you hold yourself accountable to it. So just take a few moments to write something on that slip of paper that represents your commitment. you now to follow through on what you wrote there. It may not be easy, but whether it's easy or hard, I hope you'll experience it as a gift. Let's take just a few moments to be still in God's presence as we share in this brief reflection written by Steve Garnis Holmes. Just find a comfortable spot in your seat and let's be in the spirit of prayer. Step out of what you have done 
the who you think you are that comes from something into the who that is I am. Be still. The great burden of being yourself, what everyone thinks, even you. The work of remembering what you must and mustn't. Let them all go. Be still. Breathe in. Breathe out. Come to the Sabbath place where nothing, even you, is fashioned. Everything, Everything just, just is. Come into the rest that is God. The silence from which your light pours. The spirit brooding over the waters. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out.